peace, my people. You're tuning in to I Must Be Bugging, where black, gifted, and otherwise neurodivergent folks celebrate our special flavors. If you've ever questioned your perspective in a world built for the masses, welcome home. I'm your host, Sheldon Gay, and I appreciate you joining me on this journey as a late-identified, black, gifted man. Together, we'll rewrite the script on neurodiversity by celebrating our differences, challenging the status quo, and breaking free from old narratives that label us as deficient. In each episode, we'll explore the stories, experiences, and of course, the curiosities of black gifted adults and other neurodivergent people who are underrepresented or unidentified in a world where normal can also mean harmful. So continue with me on this journey of self-discovery, empowerment, and acceptance. I Must Be Bugging is creating safe spaces, sparking conversations, and making sure our voices are heard. All right, welcome to another episode of I Must Be Bugging. This is episode two. Thank you so much if you've already listened to the first one. Thank you for joining me, even if this is your first one. Um, today is going to be a lot of uh, interesting stuff to discuss. Um, I am your host, Sheldon Gay. Uh, again, i love to, to welcome all of you, um, whether you be uh, black, gifted, underrepresented, unidentified, or otherwise neurodivergent, or if you're just, again, one of the folks who... Uh, is in our in our circle, trying to learn about who we are. Welcome everyone. Welcome my community. Um, today is going to be a heavy episode. I, I you know I already know this. Um, you know after the first episode, I had a few people reach out, and it just spoke to the power of this conversation. Why this conversation is so necessary. And one of the things that I realized that I didn't speak to as much as I would have liked. Um, which there'll be plenty of time for, right? Um, is just why this is important for black and underrepresented communities. Um, and so th- this episode, again, it's, just got, it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, so there may be some rambling, there may be some long pauses, and, and maybe even some tender emotions as I, you know, speak to this, um, you know, really publicly for the first time. You know, I've had some conversations with some of you before. Some of this stuff is things I, I may have never articulated to, to anyone before, um, at least in this way. So just making space for that uh, right now and, you know, asking that you you bear with me. And again, the subject of why this is important for black people is, I mean, that's so huge. There's no way to ever cover every aspect of that, you know, the why this is important, particularly in one podcast. And so that's really going to be the work of this entire podcast over, you know, what may be uh, years, right? And so, um, again, this is just a sliver. Uh, I- I'm honestly mostly saying that for myself. Uh, then you all, you know, the the perfectionist part of me hates leaving stones unturned and, you know, or paintbrush, paint, paints unbrushed onto a canvas. And so I'm just reminding myself now to give myself grace as well as I set a boundary that I know I'm going to have some trouble keeping. Um, because again, this is personal. This is something I'm passionate about. But I also know that there's no way to cover every piece of this in, you know, 
Um, I can't even say that I'm an expert on all of this. I'm obviously an expert on my personal lived experience, but there's so much, again, that goes into this. So um, what I'm going to focus on uh, today is is how, uh, you know, what a, a fellow ND person I was speaking to earlier essentially said was, you know, that extra layer of how we need to mask and see ourselves as unwanted in this world. Um, that's really a lot of what I'm going to speak to today. So I'm hoping again that this is relevant for you. You know, sit back and and, and you know come along for the ride. Um, in particular, I hope this speaks to the ways in which family and community are pivotal, and how that plays out for children, and ultimately how that person sees themselves in a, as an adult. Um, a lot of this work that a lot of us are doing um, is centered around reparenting and, and talking to that wounded child that maybe we weren't fully aware was there. You know, we grew up, we got jobs, we got families, we did all the things and, you know, kind of forgot about that child. We thought that child was was gone because we looked in the mirror and we saw an adult. But the reality is, is that, you know, in some pieces of us, we are still that that child. And so we need to to kind of speak to how that child, that wounded child, that traumatized child is still with us and, and how we can better speak to those children that are literally in front of us and those that are inside of us so that we all can move forward in a better way. Um, and so let me clearly preface this to say that blame in this space isn't really important for me. Um, not in this situation, not in most situations. I don't really believe a lot in in blame. I don't think it solves a problem. Um, you know, accountability, you know, taking responsibility is important, but blame to me just is not so interesting. Um, and so for me, again, this is not, it's not really what this is about. And I know that a lot of people can feel that, um, particularly parents as they listen to these kinds of conversations because parents really care about parenting and loving their child. And it's hard to think about the ways in which we may not be showing up um, as um, much as we would want. I had to take a pause there because it's not so much that, you know, you don't want to do that thing. But sometimes you realize you didn't have the tools and you've got to be able to to, to acknowledge that. You didn't have the, the insight. You didn't have the tools. And so you've got to go through the process of acknowledging that, investigating that, and then forgiving yourself for, for just doing the best with what you had. Right. And so, again, that's another reason why blame isn't so important um, as much as the investigation and kind of rooting out of the issue, um, you know, and, and really, again, you know, demonstrating how the big soup of things come together. Right. It's not one thing. It's many things that kind of cause these situations. And so maybe if we could better see and taste the distinct flavors of that soup, we could better substitute the things that aren't so healthy for us. And so. That just reminds me of a friend who says that they don't eat, quote unquote, slave food because there's so many better options now. And so uh, shout out to that person. They know who they are if they're listening. Um, but without deconstructing that fully right now, I'll just say that while I might st still eat some oxtails, I can still watch my salt. Right. And and when I make make them um, or eat them. And in some cases, to be quite frank, we still need to legitimately completely cut something out of our diet if it becomes clear that it's, it's actually killing us and, you know, not so softly. So why is this discussion so important for black and underrepresented neurodivergent people? So here's the, the TLDR, you know, the too long didn't read 
um, of it all because this is going to be a longer discussion, right? And so if you want to kind of get the Cliffs notes, um, you know, we, especially black people in the U.S. and other Euro-colonized lands, have a lot of extra cultural burdens and stigmas that we already spend enough time deciding how to navigate. And in many ways, it's a decision between assimilation or annihilation. And that may sound hyperbolic, but it, I mean, it could be more or less literal depending on the circumstance, right? And the kicker with neurodiversity is that many of those things are, uh, many of those other things, I'm sorry, uh, like how you dress or how well you code switch are things that are more readily changed or adapted to fit a scenario. However, neurodiversity is an identity issue, right? It's something that is at the core of who you are. And even it's even more so than your hair or whether, um, as someone put it recently, you can be identified from 20 feet away as having African ancestry. You know, our minds are at the core level of how we see and interpret the world. And that's essentially, you know, who we are. Our perspective is, is dependent upon that. So the questions become, you know, if your mind works differently than most, who or what do you fight, flee, freeze, or fawn to cope when the source is you? And how does not being able to escape something you're made to feel, um, sorry, how does how's not being able to escape something you're made to feel make you feel broken or compel you to speak about yourself, right? So those are just two important questions to just kind of nibble on. And that is you know, the TLDR of really what um, I'm hoping to speak about. So the first real point is that the, in the black community, mental health has a mixed history, if we're being honest, right? Um, I'm not claiming, again, to be an expert on that history and would love for others to share their insights, um, but I can safely say two things, um, or many different things, a couple different things, right? The first is we've spent forever denying and euphemizing our mental health. This is part survival and simply the fact that societies have struggled with finding ways not to jump from different difference, I'm sorry, to deficiency. You know, people have had uncles and aunts, they've kept locked up, locked, locked up in rooms. They've tried praying things out of folks. They've tried, um, you know, beating and shaming it out of them. You know, I haven't finished watching uh, this series, but I'm reminded of the show, The Last Days of uh, Ptolemy Gray, where Samuel L. plays an older black man with dementia and his family doesn't necessarily really name it as much as they kind of accept that you know he's quote-unquote touched as they say and you know watching that and and knowing that personally seeing that you know it's it's a a familiar experience um we don't talk about these kinds of things in the way that we should out in the open and it means that we can't really address them um and i mean you know i guess we have had to be extra vigilant about any signs of weakness right lest we be killed as enslaved people um, so there's a, a historical aspect to that. And generally, humans in general are averse to weakness, right, in their bloodline from a biological perspective. But that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't uh, do better going forward. Um, another point is that black people in other melanated and marginalized communities have been misdiagnosed and stigmatized to fit narratives that support, you know, what uh, some of my favorite people would call, you know, the imperious white supremacist hetero heteropatriarchy, Right. Giftedness is one of one of the primary examples of this. You know, they didn't want us to read or write and, you know, why would they ever then want us to demonstrate that our minds might work faster or be more cognitively co complex? You know, I've personally seen this play out at, you know, some of these supposedly super progressive schools that I've attended, you know, that still found ways to deny what I should have at least, sorry, what, what should have at least 
uh, spark curiosity in me um, or for me, right? Like they should have been curious about what's happening with this child um, if it wasn't simply just obvious what was going on, right? Um, I, I particularly think about, you know, uh, a time when I took a course, or sorry, I took a course, I took a test. They had a test in school that was to determine who was going to go to algebra versus go to pre-algebra or some other, you know, um, you know, math uh, class, uh, you know, level of math. And I took this test, had no idea what it was. Apparently, I knocked it out the park. And I, I till this day, I can picture it. I told the story to a number of people, but, you know, I can picture it. You know, this teacher, white teacher sitting me down and being like, Sheldon, you really did well in this test. And I'm like, I, what? Like, how could I possibly? I didn't know what was going on in that test, really. You know, I was just kind of doing my best to make sense of it. But I, you know, I didn't really know what it was about. And he was like, yeah, you know, this test is to help people, you know, determine whether they're going to go to algebra. And you did better than some people who actually had algebra already. Um, but the kicker was that they then said to me, well, we don't want you to go to algebra right away because we don't think that, you know, basically they didn't, they were worried that I was going to, to, to struggle and they didn't want me to struggle. And it didn't quite make any sense to me at the time. I'm like, well, if I did that well, I'm excited about that. I'm curious about what that would be, um, you know, what that would be like. Uh, I, I kind of want to do it. But they kind of positioned it as a thing for, uh, you know, how they were going to protect me from, you know, the shame or whatever. And they told me that they would talk about it with my mom. And I don't know whether or not they, they did or did not, but I know that I went into pre-algebra and for years I was at least a year behind in math because of that. And it caused a lot of tension, right? Um, where, you know, I was telling somebody the story earlier about, you know, one of the teachers who uh, I, they it was a, a day where grandparents were in the um, the building, right? They were visiting and the teacher answered a question incorrectly. And I, you know, kind of sheepishly raised my hand and said, Hey, look, you know, whatever it was like, uh, you said X was eight. I, I got, I got five. I, I don't think it's eight. And that teacher was irate, white woman, irate. And she, you know, she let me know it for the rest of the time I was in her class. And these are things that we should be able to avoid, right? Um, but that's a, that's a digression. Uh, but just, again, these are examples of, again, I'm supposed to be at these super progressive, super safe spaces, you know, super progressive schools, super safe spaces, but yet I'm still running into these, you know, these challenges. And so, um, I want to give a shout out to, uh, Dr. Uh, Martin David Jenkins, who was a pioneer in the study of black gifted children. Um, and his most famous example is that of a young black girl scored two, uh, you know, 200 IQ on the Stanford Binet test, um, which is a type of, you know, IQ test. And at the time was the highest score of anyone at the time. And, you know, what made it more remarkable besides, you know, it being a black child, aside from it being, you know, a young girl, which of course we know how uh, patriarchy uh, likes to uh, minimize or, or discredit um, women in, in, you know, society, you know, what made it more remarkable was that was that at the time there was a strong belief that intelligence was, you know, directly related to how much white blood you had. And it was determined that this young girl had none. So it flew in the face of so many different, you know, problematic beliefs of the time. Um, and so that is a 
you know, a key, key, um, you know, story that talks about, you know, speaks to just the, the challenge with which we as black folks have, uh, you know, we've had, a, have had a, having our intelligence recognized, I guess is sort of what I'm trying to say. Um, and shoot, you know, one of the things that, you know, some folks know is that it was only a few years ago that the NFL itself, itself stopped treating black brains as inferior when it came to determining whether or not they had been impacted by brain trauma, right? They were basically saying, well, you know, if we look at the measurements, black brains aren't that, um, the black brains aren't that uh, advanced. And so if they're scoring lower, that's, you know, that's in a reasonable range for them, as opposed to recognizing that all brains, right, um, you know, have the propensity to do any number of amazing things, right? And black brains can't be singled out. And so now you should be able to have access if you're scoring that low. Anybody scoring that low should be able to get access to um, the care that they need, right? So anyway, as I said, this is a heavy episode. Um, you know, any of these things to be talked on, talked about on end by itself, right? Um, but before moving forward, let me reference a clip from a podcast I love and that I was listening to t- today. Uh, please go check it out if you are curious about neurodiversity. It's called the Neurodiversity Podcast with Emily Kircher Morris. Um, and this particular episode is titled uh, Low Demand Parenting, Bridging Divisions, Fostering Trust. Um, in the episode, her guest, Amanda, uh, uh, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced, pr- mispronounced this, uh, Dykeman says this, um, the whole idea of pushing harder, which I think is intimately interwoven with is is intimately interwoven with masking that when we don't have the freedom to listen to ourselves and then opt out of the things that are systematically either destroying our sense of self or our well-being or our ability to rest or our ability to feel joy when we don't opt out of those things in order to prioritize what matters most that really solidifies the mask it says the person everyone else perceives matters more than the person that i am inside and oh Oh, oh, just pause on that, right? Um, that was, that was, that hit me. And she says, you know, she goes on to talk about how she grew up with a sense of duty to be the person everybody else wanted uh, her to be. And, you know, for me, this was so powerful because it speaks to the challenges for ND people as a whole. But when she called out the systemic nature of how it destroys our sense of self, I mean, it was an entire word, Right hit on a totally different level as a black person. These systems, you know, they want all of us to revert to some norm that's been defined by people who don't have the best interest of all people in mind and whose experiences don't even represent most people either. So, you know, bringing it kind of back to the, you know, the, the main message, right? Imagine black parents trying to set their child up to succeed in a quote-unquote white man's world and yet seeing things in their child that are going to make them stand out when they're so desperately trying to have them blend in to keep them safe. You know, they want them to avoid all the traps and simply want them to win despite all of that. And then the child, especially those who carry the hopes and dreams of their neighborhood and community, feels that burden to not let anyone down even more, right? And that's a a heavy burden to bear, right? It's not just that there anyone is necessarily being malicious in their actions it's not necessarily that anybody doesn't care about <clears throat> excuse me this child 
there's layers on top of this. Like I said, this goes back to just the nature of the soup and the complexity of the soup and all the flavors and spices that go into the soup, right? Um, and so we've got to do the collective work to create spaces where being our best and true self is actually, that is what's defined as not letting anyone down. We need to move to the place where seemingly deviant behavior is investigated for what else it might be. Um, this, again, is an aspect of the imperialist, white supremacist, he supremacist heteropatriarchy, right? Because the same behaviors they call deviant in us that make them put us in the prison pipeline are the same things that white children get accommodations or celebrations for. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, there are actually some that estimate as much as 20% of those in prison are gifted. Hmm. Imagine, 20%, right, of the population, the prison population could be gifted. And maybe that number's even higher. I've heard people talk about 30%. So this thing that people think makes, you know, folks, that gives them such an advantage, well, let's think further, right, about the many gifted people who are twice exceptional, right, compounded by the percentage of all prisoners who are from black and otherwise marginalized communities, and you start to see this, you know, very systemic way in which neurodivergent people, particularly those, again, from black and otherwise marginalized communities, are, it's, it's, a, pers it's a purposeful thing for, for us to end up in these situations, right? If you show up in these ways, you, you get negative outcomes. So the masking is incentivized. Right. And so the rabbit hole gets pretty deep at this point. And you can go on for days just on that. Um, the harm acted upon, you know, melanated and marginalized communities is therefore amplified because access to the resources, whether they be time, money or simply just a qualified person who can address the issue from an informed perspective is limited. Right. Not everybody has the money, the, the access to a counselor or to someone in the school who can see them. And their behavior and not assume their silence means they don't care who who doesn't see them acting out and think that that's you know them being a problem child maybe they have you know more likely unmet needs right and so because these communities we lack these resources we just find our ways to push through you know what else are we going to do um you know seemingly right but that's also why we even why even little things like educating ourselves to the real impact of teasing kids about their food sensitivities or calling them lazy because they struggle to complete tasks is so important. You know, it seems trivial, but we, if we accept that representation matters and even the opportunity to wear our hair naturally and still be considered professional matters, then how much more are things that speak to our humanity? Like how much more important are those things? How many neurodivergent people have felt that the power and release of, of mirroring Right, you walk into a space, and the things that you thought were only you, that you, only you did, and you see them in other people, right? Like that power. Now you're not alone. That isolation is 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 mitigated. Um, that point at which you realize that you know, again, you thought you were bugging all your life, but it turns out that there were a bunch of people just like you. Shouldn't we want that for our all of our children? Shouldn't we want that for ourselves? Um, and I know this is also difficult because the power dynamic in many black homes doesn't allow for. Um, these kinds of conversations to really happen, you know, in black homes, how many of have you? How many of us have heard, you know, a child a child to stay in a child's place? Well, how does that come up against a child's need to self advocate for things that they need, right? How will you learn to speak for yourself when the people you're meant to trust the most, the ones that are most responsible for the structure of your life, 
are also the ones who are denying you the space to speak to your needs without being accused of being disrespectful, rude, naive, and so much more. A lot of quote-unquote bad behavior speaks to an unmet need, like I said, and I think one of the sneakily sad parts of investigating um, that is the realization that many parents actually do recognize that there's a need, but because they don't feel empowered to meet it, it leads to them, you know, basically everyone suffers, right? Instead of us being able to address it, everyone ends up suffering. And that um, often, you know, that, that hurt is often redirected outward to the child, to their partner, to the school, and to others. And, you know, while in other traumatic relationships or at work, people might tell you to leave, as a child, it's not really a reasonable or necessarily a readily available option. And so it feels really, I mean, it's, it's a really dark place to be, right? You you recognize something is wrong, you're trying to, to speak to it. And frankly, with a lot of these things from a neurodivergent perspective, how do you explain food sensitivity if you don't even really understand what's happening? How do you explain food sensitivity when other people seem like they're not experiencing it and, and, and what it means and you don't want to sound weird or you know you don't want to want to be othered, right? Like how do you do that? Um, and when you ha- you're you know carrying all those things, the weight of all those things, and as a child feeling like you have no escape, like what do you do? Well, you you find your coping mechanism to numb, to mask, to to hide, to cut out parts of yourself, and you lose yourself, right? So later on in the in the neurodiversity podcast, Amanda speaks to another thing that I think is exacerbated in black households, where you know a parent's unwillingness to let their child see their full full humanity because of the fear that it will make them weak, like that is a key part. So she talks just about, you know, dealing with her children and them kind of questioning, you know, seeing her kind of get upset or seeing her kind of shut down or whatever. And, um, you know, feeling, you know, sensing that she's angry, but then are saying, no, I'm not angry, right? Like we've had, we've got parents who tell, oh, I'm not angry, I'm not angry, you know, or whatever. Um, But, it's interesting because, um, you know, as a neurodivergent person, you may have emotional sensitivity. So you're feeling that anger. Somebody's telling you it's not, it's not anger. You're super confused. you right. And so it may also be that that parent, you know, they never got the chance to speak to those emotions. So they don't even know how to. Right. And so now again, the, this is how these cycles continue. This is how these cycles are created. And this is how this confusion where everyone is being traumatized together, um, you know, exist. And so people start questioning themselves and they may associate anger as a bad thing or even as a sign that things are unsafe. Um, you know, and I'll just say, you know, misreading nonverbal cues can be an entire podcast by itself, if not a series. But that's also another reason why taking the time to explain what's happening is so important, right? And And figuring out how to tap into those emotions and to be able to articulate what's happening is so important because if we leave it to a child's anxiety to decide what's going on, you know, we're really playing with fire. You know, if we were able to access and express those emotions more appropriately, you know, we could model that behavior for our future generations to hopefully, hopefully break those cycles. And this reminds me of, as well of how, you know, Bell Hooks spoke about the difference, difference between love and care. It's hard to think about our parents and guardians not loving us. However, the reality is that many of the things they were doing were more caring than the epitome of love. And that, again, is its own own podcast. Um, 
But I think that, you know, what I've been trying to share is that there are things that already existed, challenges, excuse me, for black folks that make these conversations around neurodiversity so important. Um, You know, I could go on for days, um, and this is not even close to everything, you know, that can be said about just this sliver of the subject. But I think a lot of this is really a good first step um, in, in having that discussion of understanding why, you know, a podcast like this, I feel is needed, um, you know, people, you know, in the broader neurodivergent community, some of them don't believe that, you know, black and otherwise marginalized communities, you know, have any different experiences. And so I think it's important to speak to these things about, you know, yeah, you feel it, right? But like, there's a whole nother level on it for for the rest of us. And so um, I'm hoping that this helps to spark some of those curiosities, you know, spark some discussions, speak to some things that, you know, maybe folks, you know, only said in their head or, uh, you know, just weren't sure about, um, you know, I, I won't belabor the point. So at this point, you know, I'll let you all go so that you can process that and hopefully, you know, feel a couple of knots loosened in your chest, you know, what I mean, a couple of burdens lifted. And as I said, I'm not here to pretend I'm the expert on all these things. So I'd like to hear from you all. Um, if you have something to add, and even if you don't consider yourself an expert, if there's any points that spoke to you, share your thoughts. I mean, this is this is really, really important. This is about community and about the community's voice being heard, right? I'm not just here to just hear myself talk. I don't, you know, want to just create podcasts to go back and re-listen to myself talk. That's really not it. It's really about creating this space for a discussion. Uh, and I know it's uncomfortable for some, so, you know, feel free to DM me on IG or email me. Um, there should be an email listed wherever your uh, podcast, um, you're listening to this podcast. Um, and I'll certainly put some links and stuff into the notes, the show notes for you all so that you can dig in further. But please reach out. Um, thank you again for, you know, listening. As all as always, I'm wishing you, you know, all the equity, justice, and joy that you deserve. Um, again, if you, ha- if you know folks who are part of this community that would be, you know, great guests, please... Have them reach out, you know, please send them their information to me, excuse me, so that I can reach out, Um, you know, have a great rest of your your day, Uh, you know, and peace. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for another episode of I Must Be Buggy. I hope you've learned something, became curious and most importantly, felt affirmed by what you heard. Remember, this podcast is all about sharing compassionate narratives about who we are and how we contribute to the beautiful and necessary diversity of humanity. This is our place to unmask and just be. Don't forget to connect with me on IG at I Must Be Buggin', where I'm eager to see you share your thoughts, your experiences, and your stories. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. Leave a review and subscribe. It helps others who are eager for community find our people. So thank you again for being a part of the I Must Be Bugging community. I can't wait for the next episode. Until then, stay up and enjoy who you were meant to be. And remember, you're not bugging. You're brilliant.